This is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare, and this is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. And hi, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so excited to have Dr. Marjorie Godfrey. Dr. Godfrey is a research professor in the Department of Nursing and also the executive director and founder of the Institute for Excellence in Health and Social Systems in the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. She is a national and international leader of designing and implementing improvement strategies, targeting the place where patients, families, and care teams meet the clinical microsystems. There are many, many more accomplished activities that she's been involved in, but she's also the co-author of the best-selling textbook, Quality by Design, uh, the second edition, also Value by Design, and she's the lead author and architect of the Clinical Microsystems, a Path to Healthcare Excellence series. Welcome, Dr. Godfrey. Thank you very much, Skip, for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here with you all today. Dr. Godfrey, is, is it okay to call you Margie? Please call me Margie. Margie, uh, once again, thank you for being here. And, you know, when we have clinicians and healthcare providers on this, on this podcast, we, um, we always like to hear your story and, and how you move from the uh, clinical side to the improvement side. And, and just tell us a little bit about your journey, if you don't mind. Oh, that's a wonderful story. And I appreciate the invitation. Um, I uh, was, um, it was interesting, I was talking with someone the other day that I had an early interest in healthcare uh, in that I started my journey as a candy striper. I don't know how many of you remember the candy stripers in the hospitals. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was at that time Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital, which is now Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. And I was a teenager riding my bike to be a candy striper with my, I was very proud of my little uniform. And I had a neighbor see me and question uh, what I was doing. And I shared what I was doing and, um, you know, helping out the nurses. And he was the head of the laboratory department and decided that uh, maybe I should work for him and maybe make a little money. So at that time, I was a field hockey player. And uh, he wanted myself and I got I recruited a friend. And the two of us, whenever we were done with school and field hockey, would head up to the hospital and go to the laboratory. And uh, there would be slips of papers that had laboratory results. And our job were we were would get a, a, a container of glue um, and we would run around the hospital pasting these lab results and patient charts. <laughs> Now, that makes me feel really old when I say that, because I'm really not, but uh, we were running and gluing throughout the hospital. Um, I actually I actually remember that. I know Jake, Jake will not remember that. Yeah, I was looking at him thinking, nah, he's not going to remember that. Um, so we had our bottle of glue, and uh, we would glue everything around, and we had an organizing way to do that. We actually got really good in that we divided the hospital to be more efficient, and uh, organize how we uh, ran up and down the stairs to different floors. And we actually created a different sorting system to make sure the labs were uh, sorted by room numbers. And so I think that might've been the beginning of it. 
<clears throat> and now I think, I was thinking about this the other day, gosh, we went from the, the glue bottles to adhesive strips that you could rip off the back of the lab values to put in the medical records, uh, all the way to electronic health records. So it just is, um, I haven't admitted that to a lot of people. So um, kind of amusing how I started. Uh, after that, I went to nursing school, um, chose a three-year nursing program because I'm, uh, I know my learning style is experiential learning. So in a, a three-year nursing school, it would be a matter of learning and practicing, learning and practicing. And at the end of that three years, I could run an entire orthopedic unit uh, because I had so much on hands, you know, hands-on ex experience. I was lucky uh, and Dr. Mason, you'll appreciate this. I was hired by a general surgeon as a new nurse, and I was hired to be in the office. He'd never had a registered nurse in the office before. I was hired to assist him in the OR and also to follow patients at post-op. And you can imagine the complexity of that. He was in a small community hospital. He was his own surgical, you know, general practice. Um, and he uh, would get called out to do appendectomies or emergencies, and we'd be running the office practice. And before I got there, they would just shut down the office and reschedule everyone. When I got there, I said, what can I do with my license and how can I help this population of patients and how can it be good for them and good for us? So I began to take out sutures and uh, do histories. And there were lots of things that I could do that I didn't need his expertise for so he could go off to the OR. Um, the flow of the office practice was a back and forth retracking steps. And there was another door in the back of the exam room that I ended up moving around, moving furniture around. So there was a circular flow so people could, uh, there was more efficiency. Um, it allowed me to bring patients in the back door that didn't need to talk to him. Um, and I also then learned there were standard surgical procedures he was doing that he would try to explain pre and post-op care. And I ended up creating the standard procedure instruction sheets um, and he wouldn't have to say much and I could take over. So again, um, and he would tell you that his office, his practice was the most efficient and productive during that time um, because of things that I was just doing to make it better for patients and families and make it better for us. How many, How many years, years ago was, was that? that? Wow, now you're really going. Um, well, I have to think about that. That was like 40 years ago. I mean, that that's just amazing because you were, you were doing things, you know, before probably anybody was doing it in healthcare, you know, just not because you'd read some book, it's just because you were there on the front line trying to figure out how to make things better. Yeah, I think a lot of it seemed to me to be common sense and I didn't have a lot of bureaucracy stopping me. Uh, I had a, a, a soon to be retired surgeon who was interested in being very productive and um, I've always been very focused on patients and families. So <clears throat> trying to make it easy for them too. Um, after that period of time uh, as a retiring surgeon, I, I ended up at uh, Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital uh, on the cardiac unit. I wanted to be on the surgical unit. That didn't work. So I was on the cardiac care unit, part-time, new mom by that time. And um, during that time, 
um, I obviously became very interested in the surgical side of cardiology. And I started partnering with the cardiothoracic surgeons and um, started understanding that population. You know, what were their average lengths of stay for a valve replacement? How long did it take for bypass? Um, and uh, what was the preparation? At that time, there was not any outpatient preparation. You came in for the whole thing from education preps to surgery and recovery and um, actually learned that patients didn't really understand the valve procedures or what bypass was about. So I created a video series with uh, uh, green and purple cabbages uh, that were positioned in the beds to show the purple cabbage, you know, cardiac coronary artery bypass graph, you know, wasn't doing so well and the green one was doing very well. Um, I also got the surgeons to give me some valves to do some teaching with patients and families. And I also found I was very frustrated that I would establish a relationship with a patient and family uh, before surgery. They would go to surgery, come back, and I wasn't assigned to them. And I thought that was a major risk for handoffs, for confidence building, for trust. And so uh, at that point, I got uh, moved up in the leadership structure and uh, as a uh, lead team staff member designed primary care. So the primary care was based on what the length of stay was for each one of the subpopulations of the cardiac floor and that you would then design um, like three days off and two days off that um, I would be the primary care nurse and maybe Skip would be the associate nurse that we always knew what the plan of care was and that they were smooth handoffs. Uh, and we found that because we could follow the plan of care, um, we didn't have missed information, missed care, length of stay shortened. Um, staff were happier with our own satisfaction and in, in, in feeling um, gratified by the care that we gave. And of course, patients and families uh, were very happy to only have a couple of nurses to worry about. Um, I also, during that time, said, gosh, I don't know enough information, and I was trying to get a hold of doctors, surgeons all day, so I started joining the surgical rounds. So when the cardiothoracic surgeons came, I would round with them, and I got physical therapy to come with me and others that we could ask questions at the bedside with the surgical team rather than have to chase them down later in the day. Yeah, you started your MDM multidisciplinary rounds. I like that. <laughs> and that was in 1982. Wow. wow. Yeah. So it, it sounds like a, a lot of what you just described is developing a high functioning microsystem. And I understand that a lot of your career has been um, devoted to, to that concept. Can you tell our audience, I guess, those that, that aren't familiar with it, what, what is a microsystem? Well, um, the microsystem work came out, um, as I said, I started as a, a a uh, graduate of a school of nursing, and um, I had to go back to school um, to get a bachelor's degree. Um, and uh, in that bachelor's degree study, uh, I um, learned more about the formal uh, improvement work and also um, went on to get a graduate degree that I did in a multidisciplinary classroom at the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice, where I sat with doctors, nurses, pharmacists, everyone uh, to learn about how to improve microsystems as you talked about. And what we ended up with um, was we 
uh, received a Robert Wood Johnson grant while I was a student there, still working at Mary Hitchcock, and was able to uh, be part of the research team that wanted to understand with Gene Nelson and Paul Bataldin, uh, what did high-performing healthcare systems look like? So the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation funded us uh, to be able to go out and study high-performing uh, microsystems across the country. Um, there were actually uh, 22 of them that we ended up studying. And um, after there were many nominated and through the process, we learned there were key characteristics um, of a high-performing microsystem, which is what my, my life's work has been, is how do I take that research and bring it to practice? Um, if we want to look at a specific definition, um, a microsystem consists of people. So there are professionals, there are patients, there are families. Um, it consists of technology. Um, it has business aims. Um, it's usually a group of interprofessionals that come together regularly to care for a, a group of patients. Um, and it includes patients and families that in most, that's why we don't call it a team. We have improvement teams within microsystems, but this high performing microsystem uh, is, is a building block to the larger organization that if we were to think about I'll go forward with my surgical example. Uh, a cardiothoracic unit um, is a microsystem that contains uh, interprofessionals coming together with patients and families um, to be able to meet business and clinical aims. And it also uh, is uh, a smaller building lot to the meso system of cardiothoracic services. So all of more than two microsystems come together for the services. And then we sit within a larger organization called a macro system. So I think oftentimes when we're challenged with improvement work, we basically don't know where to start. And understanding the basic building block, the intersection between healthcare professionals and patients and families um, is the place to start. And then um, moving forward with connecting other microsystems like in a pathway that a patient might travel. And that all makes perfect sense. So we've we've talked a lot on this program with other guests about you know fixing problems locally for a group versus top down pushing uh, new systems onto an organization. Can you talk about why maybe the the micro local approach is is better than trying to to do something top down? Well, um, in my experience, it's both that you want. Um, and oftentimes we talk about at the microsystem level, the frontline intersection, um, it's improvement from the inside out. That we all work here every day. We know what works, what doesn't work. Um, we don't always have the opportunity to sit together as an interprofessional team to talk about what do you do in your role? Uh, what's your contribution to the process of admission? Um, and that we have all of this rattling around in our head, but we don't have the formal protected time to sit down, talk about it, get to know each other better, and also at the same time um, be able to work on processes together, which builds team dynamics and have a sense of ownership. Um, that's the biggest deal, is that we can own our own microsystem from the inside out change and improve things that we know need changing and improving 
and gain skills and improve team dynamics to be able to um, work with other microsystems, mesosystems, and the, the larger macrosystem. The model that we use is the larger organization, the macro system, is, provides the guidance, the vision, the measurement systems, the HR system. The microsystem is from the inside out. How do we make improvements? And then in the middle, the mesosystem is how to help. What is the infrastructure? So if you think of, of a surgical pathway, what is the infrastructure, including diagnostic studies, uh, a recovery room, other places, that is in place to help everyone be the best that they can be. So we are building blocks that are embedded in other systems. When, when you say that you you study them, is it kind of like an, an anthropologist would practicing ethnography? Are you interviewing them? Tell me a little bit about what you mean when you say you would study them. So the original the original study was prim, started out as interviews. Uh, they were phone interviews, and I and I have to even go back to say that the idea came from um, uh, Batalden and Nelson's uh, initial curiosity and understanding uh, panels of patients, um, and then there was a book that was published called Intelligent Enterprise. It was published by James Brian Quinn. He was a business school professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth, and he studied international service industry. And what he was looking for is what made such companies like SAS Airlines, what made Nordstrom, even Mary Kay Cosmetics, why were they the best that they could be compared to other similar companies? And what he learned was, and this is where we got the idea, is the senior leadership were obsessed with understanding the processes and systems at the front line. They wanted to understand the interface between customers and the employees that they worked with and design systems that leverage technology and also helped the employee be the best they could to achieve high customer excellence. So they ended up, uh, as a result of that, we adapted that to healthcare to say those organizations that pay attention to this very important frontline intersection and build customer satisfaction are the ones that are the likely to be the most successful financially and with outcomes and with patient satisfaction. We move that, and even now when we do it, we do a combination of self-reporting uh, in five categories, um, how we do this now, and the categories within a microsystem are the purpose, the patients, the professionals, the processes and patterns. And we help multi-D teams come together look at those categories specific to their own work to gain new insights and perspectives that they hadn't seen before. Um, if you look at you know the patients that a general surgery unit might cover, you'd have to understand the different diagnostic groups, what their ages are, are they married, are they satisfied, what are their complications, what's their average length of stay. Um, and then you would look to see if there were seasonal variations that maybe we could plan for differently. And if you moved into professionals, professionals, you want to know, uh, one of the big things we learned early is a physician often is uh, claimed on the budget to be a 1.0 FTE. Um, when you actually dig into it and find out that this physician is teaching and doing research, the FTE is maybe 0.4. But we are filling the panel 
uh, 1.0 and wondering why we have backlogs um, and delays in care because we don't have the right FTE that we're matching the patient numbers to. Um, so we look deep into what are the real FTEs for all professionals in the unit. We also look at staff morale. And this year, as a result of COVID and evaluating our work, we are adding resilience and well-being um, measures into the professional category um, to make sure if we don't have a healthy staff, um, it's hard to do the rest of our work. Uh, the third category is processes. How do we do our work? And this is one of the most important, and I'm sure you've all seen this yourselves, activities, that when you bring the team together, the multidisciplinary improvement team together, and they talk about when a patient's admitted and what, what are the cycle times and weights and delays and waste and who does what, uh, first of all, we have new insights into each other's contribution to the processes and we begin to understand where waste lives and redundancy and rework and why it's so important that I pass off my, um, uh, I give a handoff to the next nurse coming on so that they can carry the work forward. And then the last category, the fifth P is called patterns. And in patterns, uh, what we think about here is um, primarily culture. This is where Ed Shine comes in. You know. Uh, what are the artifacts of a culture when you walk on to a, a microsystem or a unit? Um, are there pictures of the staff about? Um, do they get out, get together outside of practice and, and have social events together? Do they celebrate each other's birthdays monthly? What are the social things that happen within this unit? What is the leadership like? Who talks to whom uh, within the practice? You know, the formal and informal leader. So all of the people, cultural things, and in the past five years, we've added the work of uh, Jody hoffer Gretel, a researcher who's concerned about communication and relationship, and her body of knowledge is called relational coordination. And there are seven dimensions around communication and relationships that we evaluate um, and the workforce evaluates. Remember, no one comes and does this to them. They are doing all these activities and assessments and awareness building to see you know, how well do we have timely, accurate problem-solving communication? Uh, or do we have finger-pointing and blaming communication? Do we have a shared purpose? Um, and do we have shared goals? So all of this comes together and we create like a poster on the wall with what the summary findings are in each of the five Ps for this interprofessional team to sit together and describe who they are, where there are strengths, and where there's opportunities for improvement. And we always include patients and families in our work. So they are active members with the team going through this assessment and then identifying interventions for change. Back to the communications piece, you know, we've talked a lot about how a lot of our health system is siloed and people don't communicate well. Are you finding that uh, within your you know, microsystems that there's that communication and, and that that breaking down silos is also an important piece to it. I, I would imagine that some um, microsystems don't even know they're all part of the same team. Well, you bring up a really good point. Um, and what we have found is by uh, following the patient um, that we're able to uh, dissolve silos, if you will. Um, in the, and we call this mesosystem work. Um, Jake, and, and what we do is 
uh, convene uh, an improvement team of interprofessional representation across the pathway of the patient. And we start out at 30,000 feet mapping what the course of care is. And again, um, the process mapping is crucial to understanding contributions of everyone. Um, that it's just not what I do or what you do, it's what everyone does for the process of care. And having a patient and family there is spectacular because they end up saying, well, you guys might think this is how it's happening, but this is, let me tell you what's really happening. Um, and it's by working together regularly, and Ed Shine will tell you all the time, if you don't meet together regularly, you're not going to build relationships or understanding or, as he likes to talk about, these level two conversations um, where uh, we have deeper understanding beyond transactional relationships um, to then result in better processes that, that uh, unfold. Recent work that I've done with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has been looking at when people with advanced CF lung disease are transferred from a primary program to a lung transplant program. Um, those are two different cultures. If you think about a lung transplant program with surgeons and intervention versus a program for cystic fibrosis that's been caring for you like primary care. Um, and there was a lot of finger pointing when we started working with these two groups. And now they actually refer to each other as my colleague. Let me check with my colleague. And they have more insight by um, part of our program is they go to each other's program and shadow and see what it's like when one of their CF patients is transferred to a surgeon. What are the processes they go through? What happens and vice versa, the surgeon goes to the referring program to understand what's happening there and see physical layout, see people. Um, they didn't even have each other's phone numbers. Um, so they hadn't done what I consider the basic courtesies of relationships that they were funding, you know, fumbling and searching on the internet. How can I contact this person? Um, and if we don't meet regularly, we, we don't have the opportunity to establish relationships and it becomes much easier to be rude on the phone or send curt emails when in fact, I now know what you look like and I've actually learned that you actually live in the same town I do. Um, so it's all the people part that's making all the differences in the silo um, dissolving. That's really, really, really interesting, uh, Margie. And, and my question is, you have all these different microsystems within a meso system, but I, I assume that you would find different microcultures. I mean, and, and do you find that some, based on the group dynamics, based on the personalities within the group, do you find that you have different cultures within these microsystems and that they may be getting the same results uh, or they may be taking care of the same type of patients, but they're doing things differently. Does that make sense? And, 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 and along those lines, where does, where does standardization come in? You know, you have, you have some standard things that you want to do and you want to get done and how, you know, how do you allow for that? Well, that standardization, but also the freedom for, for the individuals within the, within the microsystem. Does, does that make sense? It absolutely does. I'm passionate about that right now because uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, anyone who thinks that when you know one microsystem, you know all of them is, is not reasonable. Um, every context is different. And those who do not take the time to understand that context, to understand the leadership, understand those five Ps, 
understand what improvement have they done in the past and what are they proud of. Those people who don't take the time to do that are the ones that will not be as successful. Because through the process of Edgar Schein, humble inquiry, asking good questions to understand what it's like to be where you're living, um, builds trust and it builds relationship. Um, it also helps us when we look at um, the different cultural perspectives that helping people understand, we use a lot of communication skills and relationship skills. Um, one of them is the ladder of inference. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the ladder of inference. Um, it's how we jump to conclusions about people. There are assumptions that we make. And how do we question those assumptions when we're working with a group? How do we learn to use more questions? How do we become deeply curious, which Ed Schein calls humble inquiry? Um, all too often, we are trained to assess, diagnose, and treat, and jump to action when, in fact, we can build stronger relationships by taking the time to show a little empathic communication and take the pause to get to know each other more. So moving on beyond the... Um, uniqueness of every setting, which is why hospitals that make blanketed statements that we're going to have a hiring freeze are asking for trouble. Without understanding each, in, in, each individual microsystem and what their current situation is, there might be different alternative solutions that, that won't impact processes and outcomes by having everyone fall under the same blanket policy. So I'm not a huge believer of blanket policies. I think there's a way to customize. So that's a that's a good example, uh, HF, for the the standardized process that's customized locally. That's what I believe in, and this is what we practice. You can have standardized processes, and you give the chance to adapt locally and customize to what their local needs are of patients, families, and professionals. Right now, again, if I go back to the cystic fibrosis work with lung transplant. We have a, a, a portfolio of best practices on referring and transitioning patients to lung transplant um, that have been developed across um, probably 30 different sites in the United States. We are now disseminating that portfolio um, to many other sites, knowing that that is the standard best practice and how can you look at this and actually leapfrog ahead by adapting this in your own setting. Um, so those are two key principles that you can do. It's not cookie cutter medicine that we heard about for years. It's really like, this is the best evidence. This is the best practice. We wanna help each other be the best they can be to get the best outcomes for these patients. How might you take this collection of materials and adapt them locally? Well, well, Dr. Godfrey, uh, I can't believe that our time's already come up, but wow, no. this is really interesting. I, I love spending time with uh, Ed and Peter Shine talking about culture and, and uh, loved hearing you truly talk about culture uh, in a meaningful way. Uh, and, you know, Ed Shine always refers to healthcare as the most complicated, open, socio-technical system that he's aware of. And, and you kind of highlighted that today with this really important work that you're doing. And I just want to say on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, thank you so much. And once we all get through this pandemic, I would love to come visit you someday. Well, thank you so much again for having me. It was nice to meet you all. And I return the request that I would love to come visit you uh, and see firsthand the great work that Baptist has done. I've been a big fan uh, of the nursing for years. So um, 
I wish you all the best luck and hope that this can be helpful to your ongoing improvement efforts. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margie. Thank you.